Well, we're coming to the end of our three-week Advent series that's kind of based on these questions and answers taken from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the parts of our statement of belief as a Presbyterian church. We've been looking at Jesus as our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And we have already looked at Jesus as our perfect priest and our perfect prophet. And so today we are focusing on Jesus as our perfect king. Now, I imagine this idea is perhaps more familiar than Jesus as a prophet or a priest, because almost every Christmas carol deals with Jesus as the king. If you just think through your head, how many Christmas carols and what are their lyrics? Christ as king is one of the most common things that is sung about. But what does Jesus do as our king? How is he our king? That's the focus of our time today, as we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. This passage looks forward to the perfect king who is to come for God's people, and we see that the fulfillment of this is in Jesus. And so we're looking at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. These words would have been written some 500 years before Jesus was born, looking ahead to this promised king to come. So you can open up your Bibles or use the text printed in the bulletin, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Let us hear the word of God. There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its, his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God, we thank You that You are a God who speaks to us. We thank You for the preservation of Your Holy Word. 
And we thank You that Your Word is living and active and that even today You speak by Your Scriptures, O God. And so I pray, O Lord, that You would use me in spite of my sin and my weakness to faithfully proclaim Your Word, explaining and applying it to us, and that, Spirit, You would go forth in the power of Your Word, opening our ears to hear what You have to say in Your Word, and opening our hearts and minds to believe and to receive it and to live by it, O God. Mold and shape us and transform us by Your Word today. May we hear You speak, O God, through Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Today as we come to our text, as we're thinking about the prophet, priest, and king, our question again is, how is Jesus the perfect king for us? How is He our perfect king? And we're just going to get started with perhaps our favorite and most American of questions. What gives someone the right to be king? America is founded on the fact that we don't like kings. We don't want one. We don't want you to be king over us. And so it's a good question. What gives someone the right to be king? Because as Americans, we are all about rulers having the consent of the people. We do this today through voting and choosing our representatives. And we are willing to respect our authorities. We will, in fact, even stand when they enter the room. But don't you expect us to bow before any of our rulers? That's not happening. A king, a ruler, isn't better than us. They just have a more important position of power. But as normal as all of that seems to us as Americans, we are kind of a unique anomaly in history. Most people had kings. People today, still around the world, have kings. And those rulers or kings became king often by virtue of just being strong enough to be in power that they were bold enough and strong enough to seize and hold on to that power against any and all opponents. And then, once they got that power, they would pass it on as the birthright to their children. And so most kings came to be kings because somewhere further back in the line, someone had enough power to become king. Eventually, this sense of entitlement grew so that some kings considered themselves divine or close to it. Whether it was the Egyptian pharaohs or the Roman Caesars, they loved to style themselves as gods, implying they were better and that they deserve to rule over the people. And that's kind of historically how people became kings. And we see bits and pieces of all of these ideas in our passage about why this king in Isaiah 11 is qualified to rule over God's people. Isaiah starts by saying this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesse, if you do not know, was the father of King David. But Jesse was never a king. That David was the first in a line of kings. And so why is Isaiah talking about Jesse here instead of David. Well, too often in dynasties, kings see that throne as their birthright. They believe I should be king. But by mentioning Jesse, Isaiah is taking us back 
to before David was king. That David was taken from his father's house where he kept watch over the sheep. That he was not a king. He was a humble shepherd who understood the humbling responsibility of ruling over God's people. That seems like the kind of person you would want to be king over you. Now, what's especially fun about this particular passage here is Isaiah wrote this prophecy at a time when, guess what? There was a king over Judah, a king from the line of David. And Isaiah's out here talking about, you know what? We just need to cut the whole tree down and start back at the roots. Like, probably not a popular message, but he's saying that entitlement and this feeling of you serve me as king had so crept in to the family tree of David, we got to chop it down and go back to the root of Jesse. And that points us to why is someone qualified as king? It's not because they grow on this tree of kingship. What makes you qualified to be king is if God chooses you to be king. The only reason that any of those kings were qualified to be king is because God chose David. And said, David, I'm making you king and your descendants after you will be king. There was nothing special about David apart from God choosing him. That's it. And God's selection matters. Because really, the only qualified king to rule over all of humanity is God. That God is the only one truly better and truly more powerful than all of humankind. That God himself is our true rightful ruler. And so if God says, I want you to rule over all these people, I guess God's allowed to do that. And so Isaiah tells us that this promised king will come from this chosen line of descendants of David, but he needs to rule in such a way that he rules like God. He is empowered by God while also humbly recognizing I am only king because God made me king. And you know what? That's what Isaiah says he does. In verses 2 through 3, listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So we see two things here. Notice the king is strengthened and empowered by God so he can rule well. But notice also the king delights in the fear of the Lord, in acknowledgement that God is the true God, that I don't have any rights to be king on my own. It is God who chooses who will be king. And so there is empowerment as well as humility. Well, guess who fits that? Jesus. He fits this description perfectly because Jesus is uniquely God and man. Being God, Jesus is even more filled with the Holy Spirit and qualified to rule over us because Jesus was there at the beginning and made us. But Jesus is also human. He is descended from David and he is sent from the Father to rule over God's people as king. And so we may think, as Americans, that kings are outdated relics of the ancient world and nobody 
should be a king over a free people like us. But the Bible tells us that we have a king whether we want one or not. And it is God. And God has in fact chosen a particular king who has the right to reign over us, both as God and man, and that king is Jesus. Okay, so we're supposed to... God has chosen a king, but why do we need a king? Why must someone rule over us? Because we are unruly. That's why. See, if everyone lived in harmony without any need of rules or punishments, guess what? We wouldn't really need a king to rule over us. But a king is meant to rule over us well. To encourage positive behavior and discourage and punish negative behavior. The king is meant to uphold right and wrong for his people. And so the king has to not only know what is right, but follow through and do what is right. Now that sounds really obvious, I hope. That you have to know what's right and then do what's right. But you'd be shocked at how much people, us, we don't do that. We don't do what we know to be right. See, we may know that we should spend less time staring at our phones and mindlessly scrolling or watching TV, but we don't. We may know that we should eat healthier and exercise more, but we don't. But this king, this king is different. We are told that he will do what he knows to be right. Isaiah writes this, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so we're told that this promised king will not be fooled by appearances. He will not be swayed by prejudices. He will do what is right even for the weakest and the least influential in society. He will not be hypocritical by favoring his friends. He will not bow to people in power behind the scenes. He will not compromise his principles for his own gain. It is even implied that this king won't make mistakes out of ignorance or errors. He will always do what is right providing consistent good rule over his people. And as American as we are, that kind of sounds appealing. Like if we had a king like that, you know, long live the king, long may he reign. We kind of want someone like that, right? Yeah. We do want the freedom to live how we want to live, but we also recognize that when people are free to live how they want to live, they don't always use their freedom for good. I mean, we do that. We know other people who do that. People who exploit or oppress others. Who act out of self-interest more than righteousness. And so we need someone to rule over us to keep in check our selfish desires and ensure that all people are well cared for in society. But let me tell you, that sounds like a very hard job. A monumental task. Who could possibly know how to set things right in a world gone wrong like ours? Abby and I have a hard enough time scheduling our week 
Like, what is the right way with work and school and practice and appointments and all of this? Like, how do we just figure out our lives this week? That's a challenge. But imagine someone having to understand all of the problems of all people on earth. Understanding how do we sort out poverty and racism and greed and addiction and murder and domestic violence and political corruption. How could any king address all of these problems correctly every time for all people? That seems really hard. But Jesus can do it. Isaiah says someone's going to be able to do it. And that someone is Jesus. That Jesus has the wisdom to know how everything should work. He knows the intricacies of all of the world's problems better than you do, better than the experts do, better than the people in charge do. He knows the details of every person's life. He is not limited by our human understanding because He is God in the flesh. And we have seen the kind of King He is in the Gospels. We saw His compassion for the weak and the suffering. We saw His justice for those who had been wronged and were twisting things to their own gain. We saw Him expose religious hypocrisy. We saw Him be kind and heal the sick. He lifted up women and children who were vulnerable in that society. He taught the truth in such a way that everyone across the board was convicted by His words. And so, in Jesus, we have a King who has the character, the competence, and the conviction to rule over all people well. He's the kind of King we need. But in order to rule... Well, you have to secure your rule. And in order to secure peace for the people, you need to eliminate possible threats to that peace. And that's what we see in the second half of Isaiah. We see a glimpse of a peaceful kingdom that our promised king will bring. And the imagery is taken from the animal kingdom. We read, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The good rule of this promised king will create such a peaceful society that even these natural enemies will dwell together in harmony. I mean... That sounds great, but how does that happen? How can such a change happen? Because if we go out and try to put a lion together with the cow, like the fattened calf, they're not lying down. Not at all. See, we've tried different ways to make change happen. We've tried, well, if people just knew better, we could bring about this peace. Nope, that hasn't worked. If people just were required to do the right things and we had very strict laws, that would work. That also hasn't worked. Well, maybe if we had some inspirational leader who would just get us going and like, yes, I want to change for the better. Nope, that also 
has not worked. So how can a king bring this kind of peace? It's by conquering the enemies of peace. And there are two paths to conquering the enemies of peace. Peace. You can conquer the enemies through transformation or you can conquer them by elimination. Isaiah 11 points to transformation. Let's look at that path first. See, one way that Jesus transforms uh, us and secures this peace is by getting sinful people to live differently. But we don't do that by saying, live differently. Jesus actually gets us by the Spirit to change. That all mankind needs a change of nature because we are all corrupted by sin. Every human heart is inclined towards sin. We all live selfishly in the way we want to live instead of living at peace with God and with our fellow neighbor. But Jesus is able to transform our nature like a lion eating straw, getting to the root problem in our hearts. He sends us the Holy Spirit so that we can see that we are part of the reason the world is such a mess. And the Spirit leads us to repent of our own sins, turning away from our rebellious ways we have walked away from God's rightful rule. And the Spirit grows in us new godly desires so that we delight in the fear of the Lord and righteousness. That we recognize, God, you are God, and I am to live according to your ways, and they are good for me. And we grow in that day by day until our King returns and eliminates every trace of sin in us until we are fully transformed. And so that is the one path to peace, the first path. It's what Isaiah describes here as a path of transformation. But the second path is just as necessary but less appealing. It is the path we see in Revelation 19 that there are some people who will not bow the knee before Jesus, who persist in rebellion against His rule. Some of them may blatantly rebel against God saying, I want no part of you. And others may just say, hey, I'm free. I got no king. I don't need no God. I'm going to live for me. Either way, that is rebellion against the king. And our New Testament reading shows us a day will come when Jesus comes to secure peace for his people by conquering all of his enemies by eliminating them. He will eliminate them to secure peace for his people. Now we may shudder at that word of judgment that the Bible clearly teaches. But I hope we all understand that good kings protect their people from enemies. Good kings eliminate evil when necessary so that peace may prevail. And Jesus does just this. He doesn't tell us to go do it. He says, a day is coming when I will do it. And He will do it perfectly because He is the judge over all the earth. See, in this picture in Revelation 19, Jesus is pictured as a conquering warrior on a white horse because He's going to win the day. 
But that doesn't mean that Jesus is charging ahead in some bloodthirsty rage, delighting in getting to kill so many people who didn't believe in Him. No. He rides forth in perfect justice. The enemies may line up in battle and be ready, but all it takes is the breath of His mouth, the sword from His mouth, His word of judgment to eliminate all the enemies and to say, you have been judged. And because you are gone, there will be peace for my people. He he secures peace by conquering through transformation and elimination. And until the day that Jesus returns, we have a choice in how we will be conquered. Which of the two paths do we want to take? The path of transformation, the path of elimination. Because there will come a day when Jesus does finally conquer. For those of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who are being transformed by the Spirit, our job is not to go and say, judgment is coming and I'm here to bring it. No, our job is to point people to this King. This King who is ready to conquer by transformation. This King who is our rightful ruler. We point to the fact that someday you will be conquered by transformation or elimination. And we cry out, be transformed by Jesus. Repent and trust in this King. Bow before Him. He is a good and perfect King. That's what verse 10 describes here at the end of our sermon passage. Isaiah writes this, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That idea of a signal. We don't have this very often. It's like the opposite of the white flag where you give up. It's the flag of victory. The flag of safety. I think a little bit of like the bat signal. You know, like it's a signal. Oh, Batman's coming. The signal is the cross. The signal is salvation is here. Go to where there is salvation. There is a sign to go to. It is here. We are announcing. We are pointing to this one. There is hope here in Jesus. Go inquire of him and find salvation in this king. Because this king is not just any human king that we have seen throughout the ages be imperfect. No. Notice that in verse 10, that this shoot that grew up like a little branch from the stump of Jesse is now described as the root of Jesse. Because Jesus is not only descended from Jesse, but he is the creator of Jesse and of all of us. He is God. He is the rightful King of the heavens and the earth. And He demonstrated His worthiness to be King in exactly the way the King said, the kids said, through His sacrificial death on behalf of His people. That He knew His people had rebelled. He knew His people were His enemies. And yet He died on their behalf to welcome rebels back in to His kingdom. And He rose from the dead to show My kingdom will never end. We will have a kingdom forever. Jesus will come and judge all His and all our enemies and so secure an unbreakable peace. 
The good news is that just as Jesus came as our King at Christmas, we celebrate and look forward to His coming again. And until that day, Christians, point people to that signal. Point people to the glorious resting place of our Lord. His resting place is not some cold, dark tomb. The resting place of our King is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven. And it is from there He shall come to judge the living and the dead and bring His kingdom forever and ever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for giving us such great hope that Jesus is our King. Lord, we are sinners prone to want to go our own way, prone to want to be in charge of ourselves. Lord, show us the rebellion of this attitude. Help us to surrender and commit ourselves to You, O God, to see that we must do so now or else we will be forced to do so later with great and severe consequences. O Lord, we pray that You would have mercy on us and help us to repent. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to see the goodness of Your rule for us. Help us to not fear when it seems the enemies of Your people are winning. Help us instead to continually point people to that great hope of our King who came and died and rose again and is coming to make all things new. We long for that day. We long for the fullness of that kingdom. May it come soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.